Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. But just this knowledge that if you feed your gut, you're going to be doing good and you don't need to know the detail of which bacterial strain is doing what. You just need to know that your gut bugs need fibre to do what they do. If you don't have enough fibre, they can't do what they do. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast with me, Dr. Rupi, where we discuss the most important topics and concepts in the medicinal qualities of food and lifestyle. These are some of the things that I've written about in my latest book, Eat to Be Illness. And today I'm speaking with Professor Felice Jacker about her new book, Brain Changer, and how diet can save your mental health. Prof Jacker first came on my radar when I heard of the Smiles Trials, and we're going to actually talk about this a little bit later in the pod. Her book tells the story of why we need to consider our food as the basis of our brain and mental health throughout our lives. There is a lot of evidence-based safe dietary and lifestyle change that we as practitioners can be confidently discussing with our patients and that's what we hope to chat about today. You can find all of this information and more at thedoctorskitchen.com, subscribe to the newsletter for weekly science-based recipes and listen to the end of the pod for a summary of our discussion and how to improve your overall well-being. Professor Jacker is the director of the Food and Mood Centre at Deakin University in Australia. She is founder and president of the International Society for Nutritional Psychiatry Research and pioneering a highly innovative program of research that examines how individuals' diets and other lifestyle behaviours interact with the risk of mental health problems. We're doing something a little bit different now on the Doctor's Kitchen podcast where I actually cook my guest a recipe live. Now, you can catch this recipe on YouTube and thedoctorskitchen.com if you want to check it out. Unfortunately, the audio didn't work that well this time. So if you're finding it difficult to listen, then you can just skip to about 25 minutes in where we switch mics and we do a standard podcast. We will be brushing up the audio for future episodes so you can hear everything a lot more clearer but unfortunately this time it just didn't work out so if you're struggling skip to 25 minutes in and the audio is a lot more clearer otherwise enjoy the podcast welcome to the doctor's kitchen with me dr rupi and today i have the absolute pleasure of cooking and speaking to uh, cooking for and speaking to professor felice jacker welcome thank you how are you uh, jet lag. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hungry. <laughs> now you're the author of a fantastic new book. Uh, I've read it cover to cover, as you can tell, because I mean, there's yeah. It, so you're not making it up. No, I'm not making it up. Brain changer. Tell us okay. about it. Okay, so um, 
Well, starting with my PhD back in um, 2010, I, I guess I pioneered this field of, uh, of research that we call nutritional psychiatry. And it focuses on the link between diet, nutrition and mental and brain health. And it looks at how we might prevent these uh, mental illnesses and um, brain disorders, but also treat them using nutritional approaches. And I was asked many years ago to write a book and I said, no, no, we have to wait until we've got the data from yeah. the trials to say, if we change diet, we can change depression. Because once we've got that, we've got the whole picture and then we can give people advice. So when we published the SMILES trial in 2017, um, that sort of circle was finished, if you like. Yeah. I'd done the, the work in um, from pregnancy to early childhood, adolescence, adult, older age. Yeah and then the trial, and I went, right, it's time for the book. Yeah. And the other reason too is that people keep on asking for information, yes, and, and yeah. you know, it needed to be something that was accessible, that people could understand readily. I remember you actually writing that anecdote in the section on the smile structure, because yeah. uh, I, and I thought that was very, very admirable of you to not write a book, even though the offer was there, until you'd actually done the intervention trial. That's right, you need to, and, and that's, I think, the key, the fundamental is that I really care about rigorous science. Yeah. And there's so much misinformation out there. There's so many diet gurus, particularly in the US, who are promulgating, I think, quite often misinformation and information that's not evidence-based yeah. or the evidence is very cherry-picked. Yeah. Before we talk, uh, talk anymore, I'm going to tell you what we're going to be cooking. Okay. Uh, it's going to be a modified version of one of the recipes in your book. Cool. Uh, it's the open Mediterranean sandwich. So we've got some beautiful sourdough that you all love the look of. Uh, really, <laughs> really want to eat that. And this is kind of the thing that you, you will eat like for lunch, right? Yeah, so yeah, quite absolutely. light and yeah. yeah, yeah. And our whole team, you know, we had the, the Food and Mood Centre. Yeah. And we sit and have lunch together almost every day on oh, a big no table, way. and we all just inspect everybody else's food. Oh my goodness, that looks amazing! Can I have some of that? It sounds and like it's, you know always looks like this. It sounds like I, I definitely need to pay a visit. Uh, yes, that, yeah, do. That is definitely the kind of place that I would love to work in. Um, okay, yeah. So we're going to be making a modified version of um, that Mediterranean open sandwich. So we're going to do some red onions, some beautiful uh, local mushrooms that we've got here, mm, some shiitake, yum. we've got some Lincolnshire, I think. Um, some portobello mushrooms, so that's going to be like sort of the base of the meal, but we're also going to throw in some beautiful green beans um, and I'm also going to be toasting some hazelnuts as well. Nice. It's good quality fats in, the ones that you talked about. We'll do that at the start and then I'll chop them up roughly on this. Um, and we're going to be using, you use a ducker, which is that Egyptian sort of um, spice blend with mm -hmm. coriander seeds. We don't actually have that um, over here, uh, very popular, but za'atar I think is a good sort yeah. of alternative. Yeah, it's got some sesame seeds and a whole bunch of other things. Um, and I've already pre-cooked um, some, some black eyed peas here. Um, you can get these um, in cans and, and sort of like tetra packs as well. Just drain them, rinse them and good to go. But I actually prefer cooking them from scratch because you've got a little bit more texture and, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah. So, whilst I'm toasting these, um, tell me about how you got into this, because you didn't go straight into research. No. I had a very, um, oh, a misspent youth, and it came at this from a very circuitous uh, pathway. Uh -huh. uh, so my first degree was in fine art, I was an artist, and that was back, way back in the 80s. And then, because of my personal experience, I guess, of what we call common mental disorders, so that's depression and anxiety, yeah. Um, I was very interested in psychology and I went back to university in my 30s to study psychology 
Um, and as I was studying, I, I, I sort of increasingly realised that I wasn't that interested in being a counsellor, you yeah. know, a clinician, but I was very interested in research and in statistics because mm. I'm a big nerd. And um, <laughs> <laughs> so I started, you know, when I was doing my undergrad, uh, sort of did some interning and then some paid work as a research assistant in um, a new little research lab that had uh, been set up. And uh, from there, I, I, you know, finished my degree, did my honours in looking at depression and osteoporosis and, you know, using epidemiology. So epidemiology is when you collect lots of data from people and you use statistics to put it together. You don't do any experiments, though. And while I'm doing this, I'm sort of learning about this whole field of psychiatric research. And I'd always been really passionate about food and always had this, you know, belief that food is sort of fundamental to health. And certainly in the wider area of medicine, of course, we've known for a very long time that what you eat is really important to your risk for chronic diseases. Was that sort of influenced by your background? Because I remember reading the book that your, your parents were naturopaths. That's that? exactly yeah. right. So in that in that sense, yes, because they um, had a real interest in, in diet and nutrition. But in another way, there was a lot of what they said and did that was at odds with sort of evidence and good science. Yeah. And as I trained, I realized just how divergent they could be. Um, it's like my parents, and that, that I grew up in an Indian household, and Ayurveda features quite a bit. Oh yeah, yeah. there are good parts, and there are things that That's are right. odd with what I believe. Is I, I think with naturopathy, it often can prompt, you know, hypothesis testing, mm. and it's a good starting point for research. Mm. But um, it's certainly there's a lot that is over extrapolated yeah. simple um, solutions to complex problems and we always know that that's incorrect yeah, yeah. Um, and I was just fascinated to realize that in psychiatry there really wasn't this uh, field this body of research that had looked at the role of diet and nutrition mm. in mental and brain health and it was around that time that there was increasing focus on this field of research and science called psychoneuroimmunology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this yeah. is really about how your immune system influences your mental health. Yeah. And vice versa, how your mental health influences your immune system. Mm. And it was really putting paid to this idea that your mind and your body were separate. Mm. Um, and we we're really starting to get the point that you know we're one highly complex, fully integrated system. Mm. So the the old ways in which psychiatry was viewed as just everything happening in the brain and yeah. in the head was yeah not being supported by the new evidence. Yeah. But also at that time, there was a lot of neuroscience coming out of the US looking at how we might influence what we call brain plasticity using diet and exercise. Yeah. Um, so this, this is fairly new as well, the, 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 the sort of knowledge that our brain is fairly plastic or it maintains its plasticity rather than that's being right. static after... When, when I was growing up, the, the wisdom was that you had a set of brain cells that you were born with and yeah. you only lost them over time. And yeah. then uh, I think in about the sort of late 1990s, neuroscientists recognised that there was at least two areas of the brain that puts on new brain cells all the time. Yeah. And in doing so, that supports the function of that particular area of the brain. So the area that we're particularly interested in is something called the hippocampus, which is... Um, there's two little structures side by side in the middle of your brain. Sea monster. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and they're really, really important for learning and memory. And this is not just in old age, but you know, right from the start of life. But we also know that that area of the brain is involved in mental health as well. Yeah. And the neuroscience studies in animals were showing that if you uh, modify diet, so for example, if you 
gave animals um, omega-3 fatty acids from fish, mm -hmm. you would increase this neuroplasticity. Yeah. If you gave them Western junk food type diets, you'd reduce it and it would have an impact on learning and memory in the animals. And we actually showed in 2015 that that relationship really existed in humans as well. Mm. So we had data from older adults and we looked at their hippocampal volume and their diet and all sorts of other factors including depression and showed that there was this very clear dose response relationship so mm. people who had better diets had larger hippocampi okay and that's now been shown in two further studies with much larger sample sizes so what's true in animals is probably true in humans but that hadn't made its way to influencing scientists to look at the link between diet and nutrition and mental health mm. um, so I set out to do that for my PhD. So that was in 2005? Yeah, I started my PhD in 2005. Okay. Um, and and you were specifically looking at women's health? And that's right, because I was part of a, um, a big epidemic. I was in a unit that conducted a big epidemiological study, and at that time they were collecting data from the female part of the sample. Mm -hmm. These were women from their 20s right through to their 90s, very representative of the Australian population. Mm -hmm. We had really good data on their you know, um, diet and exercise and physical health, medical conditions, all of those sorts of things. But then we also did structured clinical psychiatric assessments on them yeah. to uh, look at their current and past mental health. And we had a particular focus on what's called the common mental disorders, mm -hmm. and that's depression and anxiety. Yeah. And they really account for the largest burden of disability. So globally, mental disorders account for the largest burden of disability. And of that, depression in particular makes up a huge chunk. It's always in the top five causes of disability. Yeah, because I remember you, you mentioned that in your book, you, you have a whole section on the GBD, the global <laughs> burden of yeah. disease, and, and actually how, you know, um, traditionally we thought to uh, think of cardiovascular disease and stroke and dementia, all these different things, but mental health is right up there. Yeah, it's, that's exactly right. It's the right. most common uh, it, it, It's the largest burden, it accounts for the largest burden, because it stops people working, it yes. stops people participating fully in life. Mm. It can really have a crippling effect um, uh, uh, you know, on individuals, on families, on communities, and certainly on society. I mean, it costs business $10 billion a year in yes. Australia. Yeah, yeah. Um, it costs the government untold amounts of money in medical care and those sorts of things. And what I think is really key is that if someone has depression, they're much more likely to also develop chronic disease, like yeah. cardiovascular disease. Yeah. And those chronic diseases in turn increase the risk of depression. Absolutely. So there's more reasons to think that nutrition was important because nutrition feeds into and is very important for immune function mm. and what we call inflammation, this yeah. chronic low-grade activation of the immune system. And that was increasingly understood to be the driver of so many chronic diseases, but mm. also depression. So I set out to investigate this in this big sample. And, uh, you know, four long years later, I did all my analyses and yeah. found that my hypotheses were um, pretty much supported. So women who had healthier diets um, were less likely to have clinical depressive and anxiety disorders. And then uh, separately, independently, which is a really important point, um, women whose diets were high in junk and processed foods were more likely. And that was, of course, taking into account all the things that we should consider, like yeah. education and income and body weight and other health behaviours yeah. and those sorts of things. And because it was novel and because we had very good quality questionnaires and things, that study, my PhD, ended up being published on the front cover of the American Journal of Psychiatry, which yeah, was really yeah. cool. And it had yeah. a big impact. But what it allowed me to do then was to go 
uh, and do a lot more work in this area in a pretty short space of time because there's so many studies around the world where they collected data on diet and also on mental health, but they hadn't put them together. So yeah. I jumped around and did those analyses and published lots and lots of papers and yeah. That's fantastic. Mm. Just to quickly go back to this recipe, because I know there's probably a lot of people listening to what on earth is going on right now. <laughs> so uh, I've just uh, put some half red onion sliced uh, into a little bit of uh, extra virgin olive oil on a low to medium heat, um, added some of the sliced shiitake mushrooms, a little bit of the portobello, um, sauté for another couple of minutes, and um, uh, just went in with the green beans as well. And that will probably take another two or three minutes or so. Um, and as you can tell, it's, it's quite relaxing. This is kind of how I like to cook at home. Mm. What do you tend to eat at home? This sort of food? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I eat a lot of beans and legumes, yeah. you know, I pretty much... Uh, you grew up a vegetarian? Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. And um, I did eat a bit of meat, you know, uh, in my younger days, ah. uh, but then, I don't know, I don't eat. I occasionally eat a bit of meat, but not very much. I, and that's mainly for environmental and ethical gotcha. reasons. Yeah. Um, but I also, I just love peasant food. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I just love, I love beans and vegetables and well. big crusty bread. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And you, you had some interesting things to say about um, meat consumption as well in relationship to um, mental health, right? Because yeah. your hypothesis, I think, initially was, you know, a vegetarian diet, plant, like plant-based yeah. is probably going to be healthier than that. That includes a little bit of red meat, but you, you came across something else, right? Yeah, that's right. So as a vegetarian, I sort of thought that people who ate meat would be worse off in terms of their mental health. Mm. Uh, but when I actually looked at the literature, I saw that there were many studies that suggested that vegetarians had worse mental health. Now, we don't know that that's a causal relationship. Yeah. We don't know what's influencing what, or there could be third factors that are influencing both. Absolutely. So um, you have to be really careful about that. But when I did my analyses and I looked at meat, meat consumption, I saw this really interesting pattern of association that I just hadn't expected at all. And I looked at it in more detail, and basically what I did is these, you know, roughly a thousand women, I separated them into, uh, first of all, I took out about 20 people who said that they were vegetarians, who mm -hmm. didn't eat any meat. Mm -hmm. And then here we're just talking about red meat, not processed meat, not ham and bacon, sausages and stuff, but mm -hmm. just lean um, beef and lamb. Yeah. So looking at this national, uh, the Australian Dietary Guidelines, it says that people should consume between three and four small palm-sized servings of unprocessed red meat mm -hmm. a week. So we sort of divided women into those categories, those that did eat that, those that ate less than that, those that ate more than that. Mm -hmm. And then we took into account their overall diet quality, because of course if people are eating, for example, lots of meat, they might also be eating lots of sausages and chips. Yeah. Or they might be eating lots of veggies and beans. Exactly, and like yeah. No, so no two meat eaters are the same, right? That's right. So we had to sort of different. take that into account. And what we found was this almost perfect U-shaped relationship. Yeah. So women who uh, did eat, consume that recommended intake of red meat uh, were only half as likely to have a clinical depressive disorder, a clinical anxiety disorder, the pattern was there for bipolar disorder, and even psychological symptoms. And it was so striking and so consistent yeah. that we went, well, you can't do a clinical trial on this. You can't take a big bunch of people and say, right, you eat meat, exactly, you don't eat yeah. meat. We're just going to follow you for the next 10 years and see if you get depressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's why our SMILES trial, the, mm. the diet that we recommended, was sort of based on a Mediterranean diet, which mm. this sort of food, but it did you also have that, that recommendation. Yeah. What's called the MODI diet? The MODI Med diet, that's yeah. Okay. One of my PhD students is a clinical dietitian, and she designed that diet. Right, right, mm. okay. 
just to go quickly go back to the recipe. Yeah. <laughs> so it smells just, amazing. Uh, <laughs> um, we've just gone in with the uh, the pre-cooked uh, black-eyed peas. Um, I've chopped up the toasted hazelnuts that's on the board. And we've just gone in with uh, two teaspoons of the za'atar mix. You can get some really good za'atar blends these days. Mm. And actually, I remember when I was living in Australia, because I used to live in Manly in yeah. Sydney. I was doing emergency medicine there for two years. Um, there's like a real focus on local Aussie food. You guys mm. are so lucky because you can grow so many different things across yeah. that beautiful landscape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should see my backyard. Oh, really? The veggie patch, yeah, I just put it in in the last 12 months, I think. Oh, amazing. So, so many different sorts of greens because I eat so many greens and yeah. so many herbs because I just, you know, I can go out there and grab a bunch and chuck it in. Yeah. But I mean, even when I lived in apartments, I always grew herbs in pots because they're just fantastic. And so interesting how many compounds are in herbs. Like yes. there's new ways of actually analysing plants and looking at all of the just hundreds of different compounds, even that differ from like the roots to mm. the tips, and mm. all of those interact with all what's going on in your body and your gut Absolutely. microbiome and everything. Yeah. So the more diversity you can get, the better. Yeah. So I like to have lots and lots of greens. But I can't grow much else. I'm not much to garden. No, I'm, I'm not. Like, I'm not particularly green fingered myself, and that's why, like, I tend to stick to just like plant pots and stuff that I can yeah, yeah. Like, grow my plants. So. But um, it's interesting you say that about like, the different sort of phytochemicals that you find in herbs and spices. It's something I speak about quite a bit in in, in both my books um, and in my nutritional medicine masters that I'm currently doing at the University yeah. of Surrey. The, there's the modules on polyphenols, antioxidants, phytoprotectants are absolutely fascinating. Yeah. And it resonates quite a bit with what you were talking about in your pod about, um, in, sorry, in your book about association studies, causation studies, animal studies, and human trials. It's so difficult to be able to do this mm. with a dietary intervention, yeah. uh, such as like, so what you did in the Smiles trial. Yeah. Um, and also, there's a lot of skepticism as well. You actually mentioned that when you described the Smiles trial, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, you know, it's justified from a purely scientific perspective. It's not when you're doing human research, particularly nutrition or lifestyle medicine research, you can't blind people to yeah. the condition they're in. We couldn't have one group that we put on our junk food yeah. time and not on our diet. Um, They're going to know, like, like, wait yeah, a minute. Yeah, yeah. You, can <laughs> you can make a placebo, yeah. uh, you know, if you've got an animal study, you can tightly control yeah. what they're eating, but you can't that, do that with humans. So you always have to be aware that, mm. you know, there's the possibility that people's expectation of benefit yeah. was what led to the reduction. Yeah. But what we saw with our trial and then with the Healthy Med trial, which was um, a larger study in a group-based setting and that came after ours, um, was there was a very tight relationship between the degree to which people changed their diet and the degree to which they experienced a benefit. Yeah. So people whose diet really improved, they got the most benefit from the intervention. And I think what's particularly compelling to my mind is that we did um, for our SMILES trial and then Healthy Med did it as well, very detailed economic evaluations using yeah. health economists. And we I showed was particularly this, fascinated oh, I thought actually. that was so amazing. Because that's something I get challenged about quite a bit in clinical mm. practice, like healthy eating is expensive. Mm. And you can understand why people might say that because when you go in the grocery aisles and you go to like the health food section, they're looking at the most expensive sorts of berries and goji berries yeah. and all this kind of stuff. That's that's not what healthy eating is, and I was I was so pleased that you did that. Well, we did two things. We did a detailed cost analysis of the diet that we were advocating people should consume, and that's where we found that our diet that we were advocating is actually cheaper than the junk food diet that people were <laughs> eating when they came into the study. Yeah. 
Um, but then we did an economic evaluation, and what that does is it looks, and it's a bit, you know, dry and nerdy, but it looks at whether, if you were to adopt this, you know, at the level of the NHS or Medicare or whatever, would it be cost effective? You know, what, what's the cost of delivering the diet? What's the cost of a dietitian? What's the cost? And what do you get for that? What do you save? And what it showed uh, with the SMILES trial was there was a roughly a $3,000 per participant saving for those who are in the dietary condition because they lost less time out of role and they saw other health professionals less often. That's and amazing. this just speaks to this point that if you have someone with depression, and it's so incredibly common, they're at increased risk for all of these other comorbid diseases. Now there's biological reasons for that as well as behavioural reasons. Mm. If you take a diet and exercise approach to treatment, you benefit the whole person. Yeah. Everything improves. Yeah. And of course then they, they see doctors less often. They go to the I don't know, you know, whatever practitioner they're going Absolutely, to. Absolutely, yeah. They're whether feeling it's a nurse or whether it's, you know, mm -hmm. an allied health professional, they're feeling better. So, yeah. And this is why we think it's not just an artifact of people's expectation. Um, the other thing, too, was that we found it incredibly difficult to recruit. And I think that's because yes. people were really sceptical that this would actually help. Yeah, you mentioned that as well, right? Like the mm -hmm. medical fraternity were quite sceptical yeah. about this, and that's why even over that three-year period, it was 60... 67 people, three and yeah. a half years. And it was really, really tough. Um, but also the people with depression, I think, didn't think that it would help. Yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah. we really struggled to get people to come along. Yeah, because the, I remember actually reading that, and I thought maybe it might have been the opposite. I would have thought if I was in their shoes, I would have wanted the diet and the counselling, but yeah. that people had an expectation that the counselling was what the, the treatment effect was, right? As in well, possibly. Was so what we said to them was, look, you know, the social support, it's called a befriending protocol, and it's oh. often used in psychotherapy trials as a control condition. Because we know that when you go and talk to a practitioner, whoever they are, even a hairdresser, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get a benefit from just that social interaction. So you have to control for that because that's what you get when you see a dietitian. Yeah. But it also is beneficial in its own way. Mm -hmm. But people, I think, who did come into the trial were much more willing to be in the dietary group. So that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So what we really need is studies where you have two different dietary interventions that people are happy to go into either yeah. one. And that's tricky because there's nothing to say that one form of a healthy diet is any better than another, another form of exactly. a healthy diet. Yeah. So it, it's very challenging from a methodological perspective. But the fact that people experience so much benefit and that there was such a tight link between how much they changed their diet and how much they improved mm. suggests to me that there's something really powerful in this. Absolutely, and we're not talking about you know mild depression, even though no, that's very No, moderate to quite severe. Moderate to severe, and then yeah. some people, some some of the patients actually went into remission as well. Well, more than thirty percent of those right. uh, in the dietary group went into remission, compared to about eight percent in the social support condition. And what's really great is that we get a lot of participants from Smiles contacting us years later. Really? And they say, look, it just changed my life. Elise, how was your lunch? It was so delicious. It's <laughs> <laughs> my perfect meal. <laughs> yeah. Good, good. I mean, um, we've talked quite a bit about uh, your book already and, you know, all the different topics. One of the things that we, we didn't mention was exactly what the Smiles trial was. Yeah. Um, so would you mind just telling us a, li a little bit briefly about what that, what that sure. entailed? Um, and also just the, the, the reason that we did it. So, um, you know, I discussed my PhD as being the study, the first study to look at the link between diet quality and mental health in um, 
And then we went on and we did a lot more research in different age groups and different countries and different cultures. And of course, other people were also doing research. And so by sort of 2012, we had this really quite robust evidence base linking the two things. But you can't assume that correlation is the same as causation, you know, and with these uh, epidemiological studies, you're limited in knowing whether one thing is actually causing another. So you need to do randomised control trials or you need to do interventions, experiments. And so we wanted to try and answer that $64 million question that people would ask us, you know, I'm depressed, should I change my diet? And we didn't have any evidence one way or another that that would be a useful strategy. So me being really naive and, you know, fresh out of my PhD, (laughs) I went, I can design a a randomised control trial and managed after a couple of years to get the funding for it, although they cut the budget by 36%. So we were doing everything on the smell of an oily rag. It was really, really challenging. When did they cut the funding? What was the... Oh, that's just what the National Health and Medical (laughs) Research does. (laughs) So... um, but, you know, we limped along and we managed to, to do this trial. It took three and a half years to recruit everyone. It was very slow. But basically what we did was we recruited people to, who had moderate to severe clinical depression, which is, of course, really common, very, very disabling. And we randomly assigned them to receive either social support, which are, we already know is really helpful for people with depression, or dietetic support, so nutritional support with a clinical dietitian. And so for three months, people came in either weekly or fortnightly and saw either a research assistant to do the social support thing or uh, a clinical dietitian. And the dietitian worked with each participant in the dietary group to help them to make positive changes to their diet in a way that was achievable, feasible, you know, not too challenging. And so, you know, to increase the amount of vegetables and fruits, to increase the diversity of plant foods, different types of beans and legumes, and often people hadn't even eaten legumes to start yeah. with, mm. getting people eating nuts and seeds. I don't know what it is, you know. Like, yeah, even yeah. now when I mention the word legumes, people kind of look at me funny and be like, oh, like, you know, beans, chickpeas, lentils, uh, lentils mung beans, all yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah, peasant food. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, peasant food, yeah. Um, but also at the same time, of course, to reduce the, the junk and processed foods, to reduce the sweets and the fried foods and the packaged foods and those sorts of things and the soft drinks. And so over a three-month period, people were supported to do that. And then at the end, we looked to see how everyone was doing in terms of their depression scores, and we found a really profound difference between the groups. And uh, as I noted, you know, the more people changed their diet, the better off they were. And it was it was quite a stunning finding. We didn't expect to see a big difference between the groups because we had a quite a small sample size. But then uh, a few months later, another group in South Australia did a very similar thing but in a larger study in a group-based setting and where they help people to learn how to cook and how to shop and you know how and eating together and all the rest of it and the the comparison group was a social group and they were really popular you know they're off to the movies and playing games and doing all sorts of fun things so both groups the people really enjoyed it but again we showed uh, or they showed that there was a much greater improvement in depression in those who got the dietary support and who changed their diets. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's I mean, it's phenomenal. I remember um, hearing about it because it was literally everywhere. Yeah. It was like all plastered all over the newspapers. You got some amazing coverage. Was that just purely out of, you know, it, it growing virally or did, did you make a concerted yeah. effort to put well, it out there? I, I, I wrote a pretty mean press release. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not and blowing I, my own horn or anything, <laughs> but yeah. I was so... Uh, 
you know, we were kind of so stunned by yeah. the findings and just the, the size of the difference. Yeah. And um, there just was something in the air. We knew that there was a real appetite for this. A lot of the work that I'd done because I've led so many of, you know, the first studies in adults and in yeah. children and adolescents, the first study looking at brain plasticity, it often gets a lot of media. Yeah. And to my mind, if you want, an, you know, knowledge to be transmitted through the community very quickly, you can't wait for governments to write, uh, you know, uh, public health messages or you have to get it out there. And to me, um, always the context is that because of the, the massive changes to our global food environment and because of the activity of big food, poor diet is now the leading cause of early death in men and number two in women across the globe. So the way our diets have changed is just so terrible and it's having such an impact on people's health. And at the same time, mental disorders account for the leading global burden of disability. So the fact that the two things are linked is really important yeah. and I wanted to get that message out there. So, But I, even I was pretty amazed at yeah, yeah, <laughs> the impact yeah. that it had. And, you know, we ended up in the Wall Street Journal and NBC and CNN, like just all over the uh, the news. And it continues. I mean, that was 2017 and now in 2019 we're still – you know, turning up in articles, the New York Times just a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you know, it, it, it continues to reverberate, which yeah. is great. One of the things that I really love about your book is the bravery by which you confidently talk about your own personal experiences mm. with mental health, um, both uh, your, your daughter and your, your personal experience. Mm. And that kind of ties in with that maternal and paternal responsibility for mental health yeah. or, or health during conception. Yeah. Um, I find that topic absolutely fascinating. Would you mind just going into a little bit more depth yeah, about... Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, like many, many, many people, I had a long history of what we call common mental disorder. So anxiety disorder probably manifested in childhood. Yeah. That's when they often do. And then by early adolescence, I was starting to experience panic attacks, but also then clinical depression. And I had many episodes throughout my adolescence and really quite severe. Now, of course, that's not uncommon, and I had a very strong family history. My father had had very severe major depression with psychosis, so had both of his parents. So the genetics were playing a really big role there as well. And, you know, I'm very open about this because I don't see why we should not be talking about mental health in the same way we'd be talking about a physical health condition. And uh, similarly with treatment, you know, reducing stigma. Um, but when my first daughter, when I was pregnant with my first daughter, Normally I'd eat a pretty healthy diet, but I had just such severe, awful morning sickness that it was like having this massive hangover. Yeah, yeah. And I just couldn't even look at a vegetable and I ate, you know, all the wrong things for that first few weeks. One and of my best friends is actually going through that at the moment. Yeah. And she's a massive healthy eater and she can't look at broccoli. No, no. She just can't. Oh, it's really weird. Yeah. It's like all you want is chips and ice cream. <laughs> That's literally her diet. Oh, yeah. I know. So, and, but also, of course, I was a really anxious, you know, first-time parent. And um, there were lots of reasons why my eldest daughter might have been born being quite anxious herself. Uh, and we have no idea whether the food had any um, input into it. But certainly she experienced um, a somewhat similar trajectory to me in that she certainly developed panic disorder when her early teens and some depression, not nearly as bad as mine, thank goodness. But um, we just don't know whether, you know, what I did or didn't do in pregnancy ha plays a role in that. But the point I make in the book, and I think this is critical, is that all of us as parents have enough things to feel guilty about and we're doing the best that we can. And the key thing is that the environment needs to support healthy choices. 
So if you go out every single day and all you see is junk food purveyors and you go and fill up your car with petrol and all you see is soft drinks and packaged food and and sweets and things like that and and these foods are so heavily marketed, they are everywhere and we are designed as humans to want those high energy foods and they interact with the reward systems in the brain and then of course people have kind of forgotten how to cook and we're busy and all sorts of reasons why we may choose the wrong foods. Mm. And um, the this is where the food environment has to change to make healthy eating the easiest, the cheapest, yeah. the most socially acceptable, the yeah. most heavily marketed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, teaching people the basics the of basic cooking again. Cooking, yeah. Mm. And you talk actually about um, junk food and its impact particularly on adolescent brains as well yeah. and how they may have less ability to say no to these things because of the impact on our reward system. That's right. Yeah. What is, um, what, what, so what is um, your sort of uh, idea for how we can actually improve adolescent health through food? Because at the moment, particularly in this country, I'm not too sure if it's the same in australia but chicken shops uh fast food takeaways uh, all the major sort of fast junk food brands they surround schools That's they right. they literally like if you yeah. look at a map you can see that they populated around schools they, they're directly targeting whether it's intentional or not yeah. that's where they are um how are you how are we going to get it, it makes me furious i think we just yeah. uh, the first instance and i can really only talking uh, talk about australia and not other jurisdictions because i don't know what the planning laws are like but in australia local communities don't have the power to say no to that because the planning laws happen at the state level. So we need to give communities and schools the power to say, no, we don't want that in um, close proximity. Uber Eats is becoming a really big issue because (laughs) then it actually doesn't matter where these things are. They can come anywhere. Um, But, you know, in Australia, so around the world, as I said, poor diet, the leading cause of early death, responsible for, by 2030, according to the WHO, at least $30 trillion worth of health costs, and that's without factoring in all the mental health and, you know, things like dementia and those sorts of things. Um, And yet governments have done almost nothing to change the status quo because big food is so powerful and their their ability to lobby and the money behind them is just massive. But in Australia, there's at least the beginning of a discussion about adopting whole lot of public health policy recommendations from uh, the people working, particularly in obesity prevention. Now, to my mind, sometimes it's problematic if you make the whole conversation about obesity because there's a few reasons for that. One is that once you've put on weight, it's very, very difficult to get it off and keep it off. So people often give up. If they think the the only reason they have to eat healthily is to avoid being fat – and they are fat anyway, they go, well, I might as well just eat the burgers. Yeah, and there's a physiological reason behind that as well because your body will defend that weight set point because it feels as if it's going into starvation mode. And so that's why it upregulates your your satiety levels. Um, So it it reduces your satiety levels and it will continue to get more hungry. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and, you know, you put um, somebody with obesity in an MRI scanner and show them pictures of food and their brain lights up like a Christmas tree. Um, interestingly, that's lost almost immediately after bariatric surgery. I think that's very, that's very interesting. Yeah, and they don't know why or how that works. But um, the other thing about obesity, certainly in relation to mental and brain health, mm. is that that relationship between diet quality and mental health in all of the research we've done is quite independent of obesity. It's quite mm. independent of body weight. Mm. Now, we know that depression prompts weight gain. We know that Uh, being overweight can increase the risk of depression probably through inflammation 
but the relationship that we see is independent of that. In the SMILES trial, just as an example, the average BMI was about 30, and that didn't change. No one changed their weight because of what, the diet. What time period was the SMILES trial again? Over a three-month period. Okay, fine, yeah, yeah, so people didn't, and it wasn't a weight loss diet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was about improving the quality of your mm. diet, and I think that's a really powerful message is that don't worry about your weight. That'll yeah. take care of itself because if you start feeding your gut and yeah. feeding yourself, your brain, mm. with good food, you'll start to feel better. Mm. You'll start to naturally regulate the amount of food that's going in. You'll start to want to do more exercise and all of these good things will flow. And if you lose a bit of weight, fantastic. But if not, don't worry about it because you are doing the very best thing for your long-term health. Yeah, that's music to me. I mean, in my first book, I remember uh, the, the paragraph that I wrote about how healthy eating um, and what you should be striving for is independent of weight loss. If you yeah. go for weight loss, you're looking, you're not looking at the whole picture. If you're just trying to adopt healthy habits and behaviors, you'd be, you'd be surprised at all the other healthy um, uh, aspects of, of wellness that will come to you. Um, yeah. One of the things that you talk about uh, in your book is um, uh, some sort of like fad diets and supplementation, that kind of stuff. But one thing that really stood out to me was um, the suggestion in the literature that a keto diet might be um, suitable or m may have some benefits for schizophrenia. So a keto diet, just for those who are listening, is one where you have predominantly fats in your diet. You, you mm -hmm. consume a lot of your energy and your calories from fats rather than carbohydrates or protein. It's a very extreme diet. Um, it's very uh, restrictive. Um, uh, there are some clinical applications for epilepsy. But I wanted to get your understanding of what potentially could be the mechanism behind why it might be useful for schizophrenia and whether that's purely because of better metabolic control and glycemic control that we can achieve perhaps through some other less extreme measures. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to say I'm not a fan of the ketogenic mm -hmm. diet. It's enormously concerning to me that it's promoted so heavily by so many diet gurus on the basis of extremely scanty cherry-picked evidence. Diet gurus. <laughs> um, and, you know, really when you drill right down, it's because people think that they can lose weight and it's very heavily promoted by the bodybuilders and you know people who are very fixated on their appearance based on everything we know about the gut it would be really bad for the gut because the gut and does not like high fat and the gut really doesn't like low fiber and that's what a ketogenic diet is however there are um, some clinical applications so in epilepsy there's a quite a large proportion of people with treatment resistant epilepsy that will respond to a ketogenic diet. It's an incredibly strict diet. It's a really awful diet yeah. uh, and people struggle to stay on it long term. And it can have a lot of negative health impacts and they know that from people with epilepsy. But colleagues of ours have done a lot of animal research and they think that it may be of use in psychosis, like we're talking about quite a serious mental disorder. And there's been a few case studies of people with psychosis who have been put on a ketogenic diet and have had a you know, reduction in their symptoms. Now, because these happened in the States, we don't know if that's just because they stopped feeding them junk food yeah, or, yeah, you know, like yeah. there's a whole lot of reasons why that might have happened. Yeah. Um, but one thing we do know about psychosis and schizophrenia is that many people with those conditions have inbuilt uh, problems with glucose metabolism. They're not, uh, you know, they don't deal with glucose in the same way that someone without that condition uh, does. So we're hoping to generate some empirical data on this. So the study, and it's going to start in the next couple of months, will be conducted in a, an inpatient unit in Finland. 
And the reason it's going to be in Finland is because in this hospital, they already have patients with epilepsy who are in, in there for treatment. And so the hospital menu has the ketogenic diet as a... Um, you know, part of its option. protocol. Oh, right. yeah. Okay, yeah. And then also these young people with schizophrenia, psychosis, they're in there for a period of time. They can't get out and there's no cafeteria. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and if I'm told this, Uber Eats, it just doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically it's almost the only way that we're ever going to be actually able to test this. Yeah. Um, so I'm very interested. But even if we do see that there's a possible benefit to people's psychotic symptoms, Again, we don't know if that's because we've removed things from the diet that they may be reacting badly to. We're very interested in the possible role of food sensitivities in people with psychosis. We think maybe a small proportion of people have because of, and this goes back to the gut, some fundamental issues with the gut that could go right back to the start of life that they don't deal as well with a whole lot of um, different dietary inputs. So removing potential food allergens from their diet may also have a benefit so we want to test that as well but what we are doing and i think this is going to be really really interesting is we're doing a very detailed investigation of the impact of the on the gut of a ketogenic diet now this is our modified keto diet that has uh, less saturated fat more mono and polyunsaturated fat avocados and nuts and fish and that sort of thing but it's still a really strict ketogenic diet and we're going to take lots of poo samples and lots of blood samples from uh, about 10 people and really track that in great detail oh. over a month to see what happens to the gut because based on everything we know, it's going to be really nasty for the gut Absolutely. and anything that's bad for the gut is going to be bad for you. Yeah, I've, But I've read there some... may be adaptation. We don't know. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've heard of some adaptations looking at a healthier keto diet. Not that I think there is a healthier version. Um, but uh, I've come across some studies that a keto diet is the equivalent to having a round of antibiotics in terms of what it does to your microbiota. Yeah. So that's something to always bear Oh, look, mind. And I just came across a new study, and I don't know how I missed it because it was published a few months ago now, mm. but it was published in Oslo. It's a really important study. When you look at the ketogenic diet and the, the health you know, what people are purporting it does to, to, to reduce um, blood glucose and all of those sorts of things. We really don't know whether that's just because people have lost weight and you get a lot of these health benefits in the short term when you lose weight. This study in Oslo, it took uh, more than 30 young adults, healthy adults in the healthy weight range. So they were really healthy, they were nice and slim, doing all the right things, and they put them on a keto diet for three weeks. Now, what happened to their blood lipids is just extraordinary, particularly because there was such pronounced variation. So they all got exactly the same food, but LDL cholesterol increased between 5% up to 107%. Oh, wow. So in some people, it just went off the yeah. scale. Mm. Even more concerning, there were two really quite serious adverse events Myocardiopathy. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then an autoimmune thyroiditis. Oh, interesting. Is that right? How yes, you say yeah, it? autoimmune yeah. thyroiditis. Yeah. Two yeah. young, healthy people within yeah. three weeks. In fact, that happened really quickly, within a week or so. Yeah, you can almost understand why that might happen as well, because if you're giving an insult to your gut microbiota and that's mm. inherently involved in your immune regulation, and you have a patient that has a propensity toward autoimmune uh, disease because of a genetic predisposition then you're essentially lighting the fire yeah. uh, with a keto diet. 
That's right. And it just blows my mind that people are advocating this as a sort of diet that cures cancer yeah, and, and, you know, the yeah. whole works. It's, it's really, I think, unethical because mm. at this point we do not have the data to say that this is a safe thing. Some people may respond really well to it. Mm but others are not going to respond well. And what this study showed was that um, some people experienced a really massive increase in their LDL cholesterol, mm. which we know is a profound risk factor yeah. for uh, heart problems, mm. no matter what the, the conspiracy theorists <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the diet gurus say. There's so many things that I wanted to chat to you about regarding the immune system and meta-inflammation. We touched on inflammation um, earlier when we were cooking. Um, but I think you've got a really nice analogy for explaining what inflammation is and what meta-inflammation or low-grade chronic inflammation is and how that relates to, to mental health. Yeah, well, I mean, based on what we know, and I'm not an immunologist, um, you know, if you, if you have an injury or a severe virus, your immune system springs into action. And the little messengers that are part of that whole immune response, these proteins are called cytokines. And I mean, there's a whole lot of different ones. And basically, they run around and make sure that things happen and that you get healed, hopefully, if your immune system's working well. But what you don't want is this those cytokines hanging around over the long term. But what we know is that there are a lot of things in our Western life that really prompt this low-grade inflammation, this systemic inflammation where these cytokines, it's like your immune system is on low-grade alert all the time. And they're things like not having enough sleep and sedentary behaviours and smoking and like a vitamin D and stress and all of these things. But of course, diet is a really big part of it. We know that a healthy diet that's high in plant foods and whole grains, etc., cetera, um, prompts a reduction in inflammation. Then we know Western diets increase inflammation. But of course, inflammation doesn't just happen in your body. It happens in your brain yeah. as well. Well, this um, is a relatively new recognition, right? That yeah. inflammation of the cytokines can cross the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, I'm not an immunologist, so I don't want to go into too much detail there. But there's um, all sorts of new knowledge coming out of the field that I think is really interesting. Um, but basically, you know, the driver of all of this, so we, we know about the immune system and its role in prompting depression. And we know this from a whole number of different studies and different ways of coming at the research. And we know that brain plasticity is involved in mental health and that diet influences mental health. But what we now know is that the gut and the microbiota that live in the gut play a key role in all of those things so they're very it's very very important it's like the heart of your immune system yeah. your gut uh, it also influences the health of your brain the integrity of your blood brain barrier your brain plasticity all of these things um, as well as your body weight and your metabolism etc now it's a very new area and it has to be said that most of what we know comes from animal studies so we have to be careful in extrapolating too much and we're also really struggling with the methodologies. You know, like, what does this mean? Just yeah. because there's a bacteria in there, like, what is that good? Is it bad? Yeah. And then we're finding out that bacteria can do all sorts of different things. And sometimes they can be baddies or goodies, depending yeah. on who else is in the zoo and, yeah. you know, yeah, how they're yeah. working together. So it's horribly complicated. But there are some basics that we're pretty sure about. Mm. And um, the first thing is that the gut bacteria, their primary role is to break down dietary fiber. Mm -hmm. So the dietary fiber that your human enzymes can't break down, that's their job. Mm -hmm. And they break down the dietary fiber. So that's just in the things like the beans and mm -hmm. legumes and plant foods and um, whole grain, all the stuff we've just eaten. And when they do that, they produce a whole range of what are called metabolites. 
many, many different ones, and we're only just starting to figure out uh, about some of them. The short-chain fatty acids have been looked at quite extensively. Short-chain fatty acids interact with pretty much every cell in your body through these G-protein coupled receptors, and they influence how your genes behave. Um, They are very important in the immune system and the health of your gut lining. It should have a nice thick mucosal layer. That's really important in uh, having good immune health. There's many things that can break down that layer, and then you get this what's called metabolic endotoxemia, where you get... Um, these pro-inflammatory things getting out of the gut and into the bloodstream. Um, But the gut bacteria do so many things. They synthesize vitamins. They synthesize neurotransmitters. They also prompt the synthesis of neurotransmitters. And we don't know that those neurotransmitters actually get into the brain. We do know that more than 90% of serotonin is actually produced in the gut, but it may not cross the blood-brain barrier. But those neurotransmitters do signal to the brain via the vagus nerve, the gut-brain axis. But the bacteria also control how much serotonin is produced by uh, the metabolism of tryptophan, and they, they're in charge of that. So there's a whole lot of different ways by which we think uh, the gut bacteria interact with the brain and behavior and we're just starting to really do the studies in humans to try and unpick all of that. Yeah. But it's very new. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, a lot of people kind of jump the gun with a few things that mm. you probably mentioned, right? So tryptophan, uh, specific types of uh, dietary fibers, and a lot of spin-off supplementation yeah. sort of, uh, practices have, have come about. You were just telling me before the pod about how you were just at a recent conference and you came across some really interesting research looking at which supplements or nutraceuticals may have benefit and which don't. And, and you were saying this pretty pretty thin evidence really yeah yeah yeah. so um colleagues of mine have done uh just recently a a, a mega analysis which Mm. is like a meta analysis of all the meta analyses (laughs) so it basically brings together everything we know from randomized control trials about the impact of supplements nutritional Mm. supplements in psychiatry and pretty much the the evidence is pretty limited Um, EPA, which is part of the long-chain omega-3 fatty acids like fish oil, seems to be helpful for people with clinical depression if they have high levels of inflammation, which is about half of people with clinical depression. So EPA, yes, tick, but again, short-term, not long-term, short-term. Methylfolate, it's a form of folate that has some pretty good evidence. And again, it's during the acute phase. It's when people are depressed. And what happens, of course, when you have many different sorts of medical conditions but including depression your immune system is activated so you have more inflammation and what that inflammation does is it kind of burns up your nutrients in a way you get this sequestration of nutrients and you you your nutrient levels drop and you also get oxidative stress and that interferes with the um the long chain omega-3 fatty acids in the brain cells because they make up an important part of the brain of the neuronal wall so that's why I think the EPA seems to be useful because it can bring that back and same with the folate. Mm. Um, there's some evidence for something called NAC, N-acetylcysteine, okay. mm-hmm. which is a we'll precursor. Medicine. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. And I think, again, it's something that's short-term. I think it, it, it has some evidence for efficacy in mm. schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. 
I wouldn't be taking it over the long term. Right, okay. Um, I think that it uh, can break down the mucosal layer. I'm not mm. sure, but that's oh, what I've read. Mm. And um, What's the mechanism by which an anastellar system might be working? I don't do know. I okay. don't know. Yeah. I'd need to look into it further. But um, in an emergency, we use it for uh, paracetamol overdose. That's exactly um, right. Yeah. And it's great for that in a short term. Yeah, short term. term. Yeah. But yeah, it's not right. something that... Uh, I would be taking long-term. Gotcha. And this is the thing. When you take a supplement, you're not taking it with all the other cofactors and things that you should be this consuming. Thing, yeah. I don't take supplements. I don't mm. actually trust them. Mm. Ever since I found out that uh, antioxidant supplements, so vitamin C or vitamin E, yeah. you take them before exercise yeah. and you lose a whole lot of the benefits of exercise because yeah. it interferes with this whole really complex processes. Yeah. I remember coming across that actually uh, because vitamin C, particularly amongst the um, sort of physio or the um, personal training community, has been thought of like a no-brainer after exercise because it's yeah. an anti-inflammatory. But what you're doing is blunting the benefits of exercise which lead to ultimately shearing of your muscles and inflammation. And it's that, it's that little bit of low-grade inflammation that actually leads to resilience of the body over That's time. Right. Um, it's almost like the plant hormetic effect. I'm fascinated yeah. by this theory of like, you know, a little Hormesis. bit of bad is yeah, 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 good yeah. for you in the long run. Um, so that's interesting. So no vitamin yeah. C. Or vitamin I don't. I mean, I'll take, take a bit of vitamin D in wintertime, yeah. but I do try and get it from the sun if I can. And I'm Australian, so yeah, I get lucky. to do that. <laughs> uh, we, are, we have recommendations to take vitamin D3 now um, in the winter months. But uh, as you've experienced our summer in June, it, yeah, it's yeah. not always uh, sunny over here. So, yeah. I think vitamin D is pretty pretty important for for people in the UK. Uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's about the only thing yeah. that I take. I just don't. I've never taken supplements. Yeah, probiotics. You know, there's the evidence is pretty mixed, and I yeah. would much rather be getting uh, fermented foods into yes. me. Yeah. And I think fermented foods is really interesting because they've been part of traditional diets forever. There's a lot of misunderstandings about fermented foods. So, to, say if you took kombucha, for example fermented tea and people will say oh but all the bacteria are dead because they've eaten all of the the sugar substrate they've um and now they've died off because they don't have anything else to eat so there's no point taking it well actually that's not how it works so what happens is during the fermentation process those bacteria are producing all of these metabolites so many they're called biogenics and they are they're multitudinous and we don't even know what most of them do but um, we also know that the bacteria can still have bioactive effects, even if they're dead. So I think fermented foods are great for a whole range of reasons. We're really keen to test them in clinical trials, yeah. and that's something we're working on at the moment. Mm. And also, they're just delicious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I just love. I, I make my own kefir. Yeah. Yeah. I love kombucha. I have it yeah. every day. And do you have your own like? So you make your own kefir at home with it? Yeah, yeah. Own, with like, the, the grains, uh, so simple, so cheap. Yeah. And just so tasty. And then I make smoothies with the kefir. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. My husband not so keen. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get him there. Yeah. I've heard of this term uh, banded around actually called psycho probiotics um which yeah. are um, probiotics that potentially have the impact or can have the impact yeah. on on mood but i think that you're right it's a fascinating area of research very very much in its infancy at the moment mm. um so at the moment it's just probiotic foods yeah and uh, there is some really interesting data though there was a fantastic study bob yoken's group um published probably about six months ago where they they took and this is to me the most compelling study so far in psychiatry patients with bipolar disorder like serious bipolar disorder who had been hospitalized with mania when they came out of hospital they were randomly assigned to get either probiotics or placebo 
And then they were followed over time to see how long it would take for them to go back into hospital with mania. And there was a really big difference. The ones on the probiotics took a lot longer to go back into hospital. Gotcha. So that's very cool. But the psychobiotics, so Professor John Cryan yes, and yeah, Ted Danan, Ireland, right? great yeah, yeah. buddies of mine, and oh, they're really yeah. the world experts, yeah. you know, and they've got a great book called Psychobiotics, yeah. which is all about this. Um, but they would say, look, at 99% of the bacteria, that, the strains that they've tested in animal models don't do diddly squat. Mm, yeah. But there are some but that are. are some, yeah. And I, I do think that there's probably huge potential there. Mm. It's just that we're not there yet. And going and getting some probiotics off the shelf and yeah. consuming them is probably not particularly worthwhile unless maybe you've if you've had antibiotics it's certainly not going to hurt exactly but yeah. i would be getting the kefir and the exactly, butcher yeah. and the tempeh and the sauerkraut and everything yeah. else into me it's something i actually tell patients whenever i give antibiotics so look there's no evidence behind a probiotic supplement it's unlikely to do any harm i'd prefer you get it from probiotic foods um, but we're just not there yet and there's so many different variations as well right i mean depending on your genetics your current state of your microbiota whether you're dysbiotic or not um it's 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 almost like the keto diet for some people it's great for other people absolutely deadly yeah. um and potentiates in some cases autoimmune conditions yeah. which you talk about in your book as well yeah. which i was i was quite pleased to to read about um and also uh, there was a study that you um, you mentioned. It was something that I, I wrote an essay on recently. I think it was O'Keefe and colleagues, and they did a crossover study um, where they took people who were still living in Africa and South Africa. Oh, I think it's it was one of my rural. favorite studies. It's a fantastic one. study. It's just yeah. amazing. And then they crossed over the diet with uh, Africa people of African origin who were living in America and yeah. therefore eating a Western diet. And yeah. they crossed them over for two weeks, and they found profound changes right yeah that's right so um you know we know that people who are living more traditional lifestyles have a much healthier gut microbiome more diversity more short-chain fatty acids all of the stuff and they compared south africans living a rural traditional lifestyle to african americans having the sad the Mm. standard american diet (laughs) and of course their gut looked really kind of awful and had higher levels of inflammation and these markers that we know risk factors for um bowel cancer Mm. But that was the cool thing. They swapped their diets for two weeks and the poor rural South Africans, their, you know, their gut health went down the toilet, yeah. so to speak, and yeah. the inflammatory markers went up, but it got better in the African-Americans. That's so powerful. That's saying in two weeks you can have profound changes on your, in your health mm. by just changing what you're feeding your gut microbes absolutely yeah. yeah it's incredible that and so to to sum i don't because there's so much information packed in your book i mean you talk about uh dairy gluten specific diets you, you even put the details of the modi diet that you put in um that you use in the smiles trial if we were to categorize what things that we need to be doing for mental health um what sort of things so we talked about whole grains and, and fiber mm-hmm. um which we we had in our lunch today yeah. um what other things are you looking at and, and fatty fatty fish um yeah. uh, supplement or potential supplements but. look i think it's really important to understand that you don't have to get this perfectly yeah. right and you know i go very much for the 80 20 rule in australia uh average like teenagers are having on average seven serves of junk food a day Seven serves. Wow. Less than half a percent of Australian children and adolescents are getting the recommended intake of veggies and legumes. Less than 5% of adults. In America, something like 60% of their average energy intake is coming from ultra-processed foods. So this is not just a problem of people who are poor or uneducated. Mm. It is a massive, on a global scale. 
So if you moved your diet to be 80% pretty good, yeah. uh, you know, you would be doing so much better yeah. than the vast majority of the population. And then that still allows for, you know, I love ice cream. Yeah. Friday night, yeah. ice cream time. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I like chocolate. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm not super, super strict and it's not prescriptive. You've got to give me an ice cream recommendation for Melbourne. I, I know Melbourne's like a hotbed for new restaurants. Yeah, and, yeah, know, Messina. Messi- yeah, yeah, so we have a Messina. Yeah, we, we have a Messina, a bunch of Messinas in Sydney. Yeah. Did it originate in Melbourne or Sydney? No, actually. Okay, not well, sure. I but I also enough. love. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. No, there's many, especially yeah. around Carlton, yeah. <laughs> around the Italian area. Yeah. So much good gelati. I know I love ice cream. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, you know, 80% of your, your diet, you're just going for whole foods and mm. it doesn't have to be that difficult or complicated. You know, porridge for breakfast. Mm. Yay. Yeah. You know, mm. a bit of Greek yogurt with some oats on top and whatever. Yay. Yeah. Um, lunch like we had today, just, you know, good quality sourdough bread. Mm. Um, Rivitas, whatever. Mm, mm. The sorts of recommendations we gave in the Smiles trial were dead simple. They were like a, you know, Rivita type biscuit uh, and a tin of tuna and some sliced salad. Yeah. Bang yeah. it on. That's yeah. it's cheap. It's easy. It's quick. Yeah. Um, I use and for that simple diet to have that dramatic effect. Yeah, over three it, it's just extraordinary. Yeah. So you introduce fiber. Fiber mm. is key. That is number one. Polyphenols, mm. you know, come in all the colourful fruits and vegetables. They yeah. seem to be really powerful. Mm. There's some really interesting studies showing that if you get rodents and you put half of them on a high fat diet and the rest on a normal diet, the ones who are getting the high fat diet, of course, they get really fat. Yeah. And they put on lots of weight. But if you take a third group and you give them that high fat diet, but you also give them polyphenols in the form of, you know, blueberry supplementation or whatever, they only put on half as much weight. Wow. So it's the only thing that's different. Yeah. And it mitigates weight gain. So you've got to look after your gut. Yeah. Your gut and I think that makes it easier for people. They get told that they should eat their fruits and veggies, yeah. but they don't really know why. And they think, oh, well, maybe one day I'll have a heart attack. But that's yeah. off in the future. Yeah. But and if often you say, people reduce like the berries, for example, just to its uh, polyphenolic components, yeah. so the flavonoids and stuff like that. But actually, you know, it's the fiber. It's all the other parts. All the other of things the that we haven't even started to measure exactly. yet. This is what's so mm. powerful about plants. Mm. Um, but just this knowledge that if you feed your gut, you're going to be doing good and you don't need to know mm. the detail of which bacterial strain is doing what. You just need to know that your gut bugs need fibre to mm. do what they do. If you don't have enough fibre, they can't do what they do. You just need to know that lots of different types of fibre and different types of plant food help lots of different t- types of bugs to live there. Yeah. And it's like a zoo. You want this real biodiversity in yeah. your gut. My husband and I have just uh, written a kid's book. Oh, have you? Yes. Another book? Yeah, and it's called, <laughs> it's called There's a Zoo in My Poo. <laughs> and the idea is that we want to get kids actually going, I'm the zookeeper. Yeah. I'm in, in charge of these guys. I've yeah. got to look after them. Yeah. And that means I've got to feed them the right things. And I think that's true for adults as well. That yeah. It's making it very concrete like that is yeah. going to be really powerful. That's brilliant. I can't wait to read that. Yeah, yeah. I it's hilarious. It will help parents, I think, as well think yeah, about totally. it. Right? Yeah, totally. I know. And, and it's full of um, illustrations because my husband's a crazy illustrator. But it's also full of, you know, poos and bums and farts and yeah. mucus and all the yeah. things that kids love. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a lot of fun doing that together. Oh, great. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, it's funny. But I think that idea that this is something very concrete, it's about your gut, you can change it really fast. You just need to make those switches to your diet. That is so powerful. 
what an unbelievable guest and Professor Felice Jacka is just such a pleasure to be around. Her brand new book, Brain Changer, is out right now on all good bookstores and Amazon, the links of which you can find on thedoctorskitchen.com. Check her out on Twitter as well, at Felice Jacka, all one word, that's J-A-C-K-A. And the links for all of those are on the website too. To round up our conversation, quality fats in particular from fatty fish, or if you're vegan, vegetarian, you can pick them up in supplement forms uh, made from algae now that have good uh, quantities of EPA and DHA. Making sure you're getting fiber into your diet. We always say this every single week at the doctor's kitchen. The most important thing in your diet is probably going to be fiber because it's so lacking in the UK's diet as a whole and most industrialized nations as well. We talked about flavonoids, colors, getting more plants on people's plates, as well as the utility of some supplements as well. In her book, you'll find all this and much, much more, including her personal experience with mental health, junk food and its impact on the adolescent brain, different sorts of dietary practices. We touched on ketogenic diet, but she also talks about low carb and a whole bunch of others, why a Mediterranean style of eating may be the best overall in terms of overall health as well as particular uh, regard to mental health. And also she talks about stress, its impact on the immune system, neuroinflammation, uh, and the difference between different types of data. So whether we're looking at associative studies, causative studies, reverse causality, and the um, nuances between those. Check out thedoctorskitchen.com as well for the recipe that I cooked for Lise Jacker. She absolutely loved it. Subscribe to the newsletter for weekly recipes, content, and much more to help you live the healthiest, happiest life. Don't forget to pick up a copy of Eat to Be Illness where I talk about mood in a whole chapter as well. And I'm really grateful to say that it mirrors a lot of what Felice Jacker was talking about as well. Give us a five-star rating if you like the pod. It really helps spread the love and message for food as medicine. See you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.